Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today. We first met when he was only 15 years old, and I was more than 15 years old. Welcome, Jordan Roth. Okay. Hey, everyone. My guest today is the Tony Award-winning producer, Jordan Roth. Jordan is president of Jujamson Theatres, an organization that produces Broadway plays and oversees five Broadway theaters. He and his team are presenting some of the most influential and successful musicals and plays on Broadway today. Current productions include the Tony Award-winning Best Musicals, The Book of Mormon and Kinky Boots, Springsteen on Broadway, Frozen, and Mean Girls. Some of his many, many past shows include Present Laughter, Falsettos, Clybourne Park, a Tony Award winner for Best Play, American Idiot, Spring Awakening, and his very first producing credit, the long-running The Donkey Show. Combining his love of theater with his passion for making a difference, Jordan created Givenick.com, a service that allows theatergoers to buy discounted tickets and give 5% of their ticket price to the charity of their choice. Givenick.com currently supports over 750 charitable organizations, including God's Love We Deliver. Jordan graduated with honors from Princeton University with degrees in philosophy and theater and received his MBA from Columbia Business School. He is a passionate advocate for human rights with an intense focus on supporting the LGBTQI community. He lives in New York City with his husband, Richie Jackson, and their two sons. Welcome, Jordan Roth, to the podcast. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. And if it took having you come here for us to get like 45 minutes of uninterrupted time, this is a great ploy on my part. What an amazing thing you have built here. Thank you. Happy to be with you. I'm happy to have you here. And I, you know, there have been other guests on the show that have claimed that they have known me the longest. But I have to say. I can tell them that that's incorrect. That is right. Little known fact. We've known each other the longest. I'll take that. All right. So before we get to our romance, which I believe this song is going to sound familiar to you. La 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 la. Bum 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 Da 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 
la 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 la. I think we should have a contest of who can call in and say what was that from. We're not going to say anything more. We'll have a footnote later. So I want to go back because that song is meaningful to me and to you because that's the song that brought us together. But you were born and living before we met. And so I want to go. That's just not true. Life (laughs) begins with that little ditty. You grew up in New Jersey, Mm -hmm. and your mom, Daryl Roth, the magnificent theater producer. Indeed. Your dad, Steve Roth, a magnificent building producer. You have a sister. Yes, Amanda. Amanda, who's older than you. Yes, four and a half years older. And I want to just ask you to tell me a little bit about Saddle River. Where did you grow up? Ridgewood. Ridgewood. I'm sorry. No, Saddle River was... So I was born in the city uh, at Mount Sinai, Dr. Cherry. (gasps) Thank you, Dr. Cherry. I enjoy that. Good job. (laughs) Uh, Good job. And my parents and my sister uh, lived in Saddle River. You're right. But then when I was born, uh, we lived in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Okay. So life started there. Actually, little known fact, I'm getting into this theme, they were renovating this house and um, there were these huge holes in the house where windows were supposed to be and the windows had not arrived yet and it was November. I was born on November 13th and so we couldn't be in the house. So my parents bunked in with my grandparents, my mother's parents, um, and my grandmother was like, great, you can stay here. I'll go to Paris. <laughs> my grandmother was is a, um, a an extraordinary traveler and sort of spur of the moment, let's go and do. Um, and so I think a friend of hers said, oh, my God, it's going to be crazy with the baby. And so you should come visit me in Paris. Right. And so, yes. And then she came back when you were 18. And said, hey. He turned out great, Daryl. That was great. I mean, it's a funny story, but was there anything hurtful about that for your mom, or was it funny right away? Oh, no, I think it was funny. Okay. I'm sure it was funny. <laughs> okay. She's still alive, isn't she? Yes. My grandmother, God bless her, is uh, 95. Amazing. Yeah. And beautiful. Beautiful. Stunning. Because she was up for the adventure. I, you know, I think there's lesson in that. So may, may we all be up for the adventure. I'm up for the adventure. So when you were born, I don't think your mom was yet producing theater. No, not at all. So my mom started producing when I was 12. And so zero to 12, we were just fans together. My yeah. my mother really um, introduced me to the theater and and fueled my growing love of both performing and watching and dissecting and devouring cast albums and Tony watching and all of the things that we do when we find this place called the theater and it makes sense to us. And was this something you and your mom did separately from your dad and Amanda? Was Amanda in on it too? Or was it more, were you and Amanda like doing little shows at home together? So I'll tell you what. I do have a picture of the two of us outside our dance recital. And I was in, I'm feeling, I I think this title of your podcast has inspired the little known facts to kind of emerge in the brain. Yes. Yes. This fabulous royal blue sequin vest with the white pants and the strip of blue sequin that went goes down the pants, all about it. And my sister in this red satin with a feather. Like, I think we should probably go back and think about why we dress children 
in this way for these kinds of performances, but that's what we did. Um, <laughs> be that as it may. Be that as it may. <laughs> so my sister, no, my sister was, uh, other than those dance performances, she was not as, as obsessed. obsessed with the theater, though I will tell you very happily, her oldest daughter is obsessed with the theater, and so that has allowed her to kind of re-explore theater through her daughter's eyes in a, in a, a very beautiful and meaningful way. So full circle, full circle. But no, I think we, you know, we came to the theater as a family, certainly, uh, and then other times uh, it was just my mother and and uh, me going and and connecting through the theater and through how uh, meaningful it was for us. And did you perform as a kid? I did, I did, I did. Quite a bit, and that is, um, interestingly, I think that the stage was safe space for me, as I think it is for a lot of, a lot of us who find our way through storytelling, through performing, through inhabiting somebody else as a way closer to ourselves, or in some cases farther away. What were you like as a kid? I remember myself not being very great at being a kid. I think I understood too much and saw too much. And I was not the kid that was carefree and running around. I was sitting and thinking. So you had the weight and, of the world yes, on your shoulders. Uh, and always, you know, I would go to wherever I was, it was always the adults that I would kind of connect with. Yeah. Counselors at camp, not the campers. I was really not good at being a camper. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Well, you know, I really, I wasn't ready to be away from home until very late. There was a time where we all were like, is college going to, is, is this going to work? Yeah. College? Is he going to go locally? Yeah. Like, how right, is this? Right, so he could sleep at home at night? Well, what is that? Did they send you every summer yes. begrudgingly to sleepaway camp? So here's what happened. Yeah. I went to camp early. I it must have been like seven or eight. Yeah. And now that I have my own children, I think it is insane. No. It's insane. This whole let's send our youngsters away for two months and hope for the best. But I know a lot of people who do it and love it. My sister loved camp. She right. went to the same camp for many, many years. So I went early and I went to a camp called Chickawa. Mm-hmm. Chickawa for mine, from now till eternity, eternity. Um, and it felt like eternity. No. Oh. Here's the crazy thing. I loved it. I don't know what the hell happened, but I loved it. I had like the first couple of, the first week or so was a transition. Right. And then I was all about it, had the best time, and it closed. 60 years of Camp Chickawa. It took one summer and with Jordan. One Hall. summer. <laughs> Shut it and down. It's all over. Wow. How many summers do you think you'd gone when and then it closed? One. Oh, just one summer. I'm telling you, one that summer. That was it. No, for real. Saddest story ever. Chikwa. Okay. And so then it was looking for, and you know, there's no shortage of Jewish, Jewish summer Jewish all camps. boys camps, yeah. camp for sports, yeah. which of course was not what Sign I was interested me not in. Up. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever, that's what we did. So there were so then there was a succession of other camps, and I don't know why that first summer worked, and all subsequent summers I just I couldn't get out of my own way. I, I kind of fell into this homesickness, and also fear. It's a strange thing. We decide that children are children. 
And then at a certain age, they're not all children anymore. There are boys and there are girls. And that divides. And at the point at which, and I watched this with Jackson at camps. Um, your son. Yes, your older, our older son. son. Yeah. Because, you know, in those early years, the boys and the girls are together. The counselors are mostly women. And there is a very nurturing and loving and warm sense. And then the next year, there's that point at which now everybody's old enough that we're going to start treating girls like we think girls should be treated and boys like we think boys should be treated. And all of a sudden, all the boy counselors are boys and they're screaming. And it's aggressive. Beha- it's and, aggressive and yeah. they're behaving like coaches. And I always wanted to be hang out with girls. Look, I think we all see ourselves at, and to some extent as a center point. And so it is a strange hubris to think that I'm the only one that's afraid. Right. And I'm the only one that, that feels like he doesn't fit. And everybody else is happy and totally well-adjusted. And, and we know that's not true in our heads, but that's hard to hold in our hearts, particularly when we're little. Mm-hmm. So did the theater, like, did you do theater in elementary school or high school? Always. I have found in, in all stages of my life that the theater is a place where uh, the things that I have thought made me wrong in the world make me right hmm. here. The thing you look back on and you think these secrets that we thought were so horrible, and they never are, but they are to us until they're not. And particularly freshman year. Freshman year uh, was a, a, a step back in many ways on the self-exploration journey. I went to Princeton and I sort of decided that I was going to do Princeton. And I was, I was performing Princeton, not Avenue Q. <laughs> You didn't go to Avenue Q University. No. Um, and it was very clear how to do that, and I was doing that. Were you in a fraternity? Were you doing it that way or no? No, no, no. It was sort of what I wore, and I was now I was in student government. I was going to go to Princeton and be politics and and um, was your was your costume preppy? Yeah. As much now as I can do preppy, Gucci baby. As, as, much right? as, yes. as much as I can do preppy, it was preppy. Cashmere preppy. Cashmere yeah. preppy. Then I came back the the summer after sophomore after freshman year. I came back to the city, and I started growing my hair out. It's interesting. My hair is actually, um, and I think for in many for many people, your hair and how you what you do with it is somehow representative or indicative of um, where you are or where you want to be. Sometimes we know where we want to go uh, subconsciously and maybe we express it. The hair gets there first. The hair gets there first. Came back to the city and I went to my first gay bar. Your first? My first gay bar 
here's how you do that. Okay. In 1993. 1993 Manhattan. You go to a Barnes & Noble. And you go to the travel section of Barnes and Noble, yeah. and you find the gay travel book about New York, and you read about the bars in New York in the gay travel book, and you find a bar called Splash, which sounds about perfect. So I went home, and Friday night, I decided I was going to this bar, and uh, we lived on the Upper East Side. And I got in a cab, and I went down Fifth Avenue to, I think it was on 18th Street. And I got out of the cab on 5th and 18th on the north side of the street. I walked, Splash was on the south side of the street. I walked across 18th Street. I saw the door. I kept walking, went to the avenue, got in a cab, went back home. Next night, Saturday night, same drill. Got in a cab, downtown, got off on um, 18th Street, this time on the south side of the street, walked across, went in. Going to bars was always a point of great anxiety for me. Um, growing up in the city, there was, you know, that you kids went to bars. Not my kids. Amen to you. And it always was, I don't mean kids, let me be very clear. I know. Teenagers who still shouldn't have been in bars went to bars. And um, I was always very anxious about this. I was like, I'm not supposed to be here. I know I'm not supposed to be here. I'm going to get caught here. I don't belong here. And I didn't go very, I didn't, best little boy in the world. Yeah. Um, I didn't go very frequently because it was so upsetting to me. And then I walked into Splash, and I walked in, I planted myself, and there I was. And I thought, oh, I was just in the wrong bar. It's not that I was so afraid that I was underage. Right, that I was going to get in trouble. Right, I was just in the wrong place. And then a friend, an adult friend of our family, uh, had given me a gift of a brown leather biker jacket. And this was a thing that sat in the back of my closet for many years because you know what that means. You know who wears that. And I thought it was the coolest thing that she gave it to me. And I don't think I quite understood, like, why she was giving it to you. And I went back to school sophomore year, and my hair was long, and I was wearing a brown biker jacket. And it began from there. I find it remarkable that it wasn't something you had talked about within your family until then. Well, I think in retrospect, everybody knew, no secret. But I think um, it's one of the reasons that outing people is so um, inhuman. Because this is a thing that belongs to you. And claiming it for yourself and saying it for yourself when you want to and the way you want to to whom you want to is a, a, a moment of great power uh, and great self-actualizing. And um, to take that from another person 
is um, not what to do. So I think it was um, uh, an act of great generosity. And, and then I, my pendulum swung like way the hell the other way um, because it was really important to me that I not blend in and that you not think that I'm that I don't know that you know something that I don't know right. or that I'm not saying so like that's when we were running around in dresses the jacket was just the beginning the jacket was just the beginning yeah. and then in college anything that I could die on stage was I was all about it I I did a production of the maids that um was really seminal for me. Actually, Gordon Cox, little known fact, Gordon Cox, who writes for Variety, directed that production. And also a little known fact, you know, The Maids is not... Shanae is hilarious. I think so. <laughs> um, but it's not like wildly popular or produced all over particularly colleges. But we had two productions of The Maids at Princeton that year. One was... And there's some debate about how the maids is meant to be performed or was intended to be performed, whether it was for men to play the women of the maids or for women to play the women of the maids. And so quite coincidentally, from two different avenues, these two productions of the maids emerged on campus, one with women playing the roles and one with men playing the roles. And um, one of my dear friends, Lee Carpenter, a wonderful uh, author was one of the women in the women production, and another dear friend, Mark Rosen, played opposite me with Gordon directing. That was a really seminal production for me. Uh, I had come out that year, sophomore year in college, and you know I said earlier the things that I thought made me wrong in life made me right on stage, and never more than that production in that moment in my life because I was um, I was very skinny. I had uh, long hair like I do now. I think my hair goes in sort of 10-year cycles. Um, you know, my whole life up till then, the thing you'd say to me to try to hurt me was, you look like a girl. And here I was doing this show and the fact that that may have been true was what made that performance possible. And drew applause, right? Like, right? Yes. So the act of flipping those things that, that we think are the worst things about us or the things that we're told are the worst things about us or the things that other people will find and push on and push on and push on and turn into something that we, something about ourselves that we feel betrays us, and that you can take those things and get people to applaud you and love you for them, that's intoxicating. Right. It's also dangerous, but it's intoxicating. I am so grateful to you for the incredible honesty and vulnerability that you are sharing with me today. I just feel your generosity is is um, really moving to me. And That's as a right. mother, I feel really grateful. All right. I want to fast forward to the beginning of what has become an extraordinary producing career and talk about The Donkey Show. What was The Donkey Show for you? You know, The Donkey Show was was really seminal for me, as it was for... 
bunch of us. Diane Paulus directed it. Scott Pask did the set. Kevin Adams did the lights. David Willard did the costumes. And we were all starting out. Unbelievable. Um, what a gang. Uh, it was a great gang. <laughs> what a gang. It was a great gang. Yeah. And it's why I say, you know, I, I when people ask about advice and what to be doing, I, I, I really encourage people to look at the people around them and look who you can create with now. Because that class... You, that your class is the group that you will grow with and advance with, uh, and some of them will be two steps ahead of you, and they will invite you in, and then you'll be a step ahead of them, and you will invite them in, and you will keep creating together, and you will keep circling around each other. And that has certainly happened for me with that group of um And that kind of, of loyalty. Artists. Yeah, loyalty. And, and sort of shared experience. And I think I think a lot of us are still exploring and unpacking the ideas that we were playing with in the donkey show in in later in our career but yes i didn't i didn't at that point say i was a producer i said i was producing this show and at first i didn't have to say anything and i actually think that you know i think we are an industry we are a culture but we are specifically an industry that that feels great comfort in titles. You are a what? You are an actor. You are a writer. You are a director. You are she who does that. And it's interesting in a, in a business of creativity that that desire is pretty antithetical to uh, a creative life. And uh, I got sort of lucky in the beginning because um, nobody, was, nobody was looking at this. And so I didn't have to hang out a shingle and say, I'm a producer and now I will go about the business of trying to actually produce. I can just do a show. There's value in that. There's great value in that. Um, and it's something I, I grapple with now and I see others grappling with it because we all of us have many things inside of us and many different ways in which those things want to be expressed or unpacked. And I am a blank is not very helpful for that. It's one of the things I love about what you were doing. And I think I, I got lucky in the beginning because I didn't have to, uh, I didn't have to declare identity. I think professional identity can be very comforting, but also somewhat limiting. I remember seeing you after Charlie Brown, which was the only musical I did, and I had never thought of myself as a musical theater actress before that. But I remember coming in to audition for a musical called um, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Would you like me to tell you what you wore for your audition? Because I can picture you walking in the door yes, in your fishnets <laughs> and your... Combat boots. You yes. made a really interesting choice yes. that you were not doing stilettos or right. heels or platform platforms, go right? Or, right. No, no. And you, so it was combat boots. And I actually, um, so I remember that very well. And we, ha I remember exactly what we talked about as you came in. It's interesting how our conversation is circling around the way that we present ourselves, um, physically, outwardly, as 
different manifestations of the way we see ourselves or the way we want to see ourselves. I think a lot about how we work outside in as well as inside out. Uh, and those two, somewhere in the middle, you find yourself. Well, all I know is you were not 15 anymore, and you Pretty were close. You, you were 16, <laughs> and going on that, 84. Yes, but you were a very friendly face in that room, and uh, and I remember being okay that Daphne Rubin Vega ended up doing it. I could not have been. I remember just saying like, you should, you guys. Daphne Rubin Vega is here. <laughs> guys, oh my God. But that was probably one of my favorite audition experiences I'm ever. I'm so happy to hear that. First of all, just to get to sing. Like, whatever. It's just so much fun. And joyful, for me, it's joyful. so joyful. Because it's not what I, you know, when you think about the things that you feel pressure about, that to me is always hilarious. Like, oh my God, I'm at like 890 Broadway. Like, this is hilarious. Or Telsey, like, it's just, it it costs me nothing because I love to sing and it's so much fun and I'm doing it in my shower and now I'm doing it for you. Like, it doesn't matter. My personal journey is not wrapped up on whether or not I get a musical. But isn't that interesting, the yeah. things we decide have high stakes and the things we don't? Because for other people, you'd be like, oh my God, you want me to sing? You want me right. to open my, because singing no. can be very vulnerable. Totally. Right? I it's think it's exposure. hilarious for me. It's always hilarious when people are asking me to come in to sing because I just sit there going, do you know who else? That's Katie Finneran. <laughs> do you want funny and can sing? Like, I will cast it for you. And then I just want to hop to the other side of the table with like Bernie. And, you, you know, it's like I'm happy to do either. So, but this is exactly my point. Yes. Right? Is that when we circle around creativity, when our hearts are our creative, we don't look at it from only one seat. We don't look at it in only one medium, and we don't look at it from only one perspective of that medium. And allowing ourselves, that's a thing that, that is true of children. At some point, we decide that that's not okay anymore, we have to commit to something, and we have to be one thing. And then we will spend the rest of our lives trying to open ourselves back up to possibilities. Well, this is really us. interesting because you have a pretty in the world of titles, I believe I called you president earlier. <laughs> and as far as I'm concerned, you are the president. You have a very grown-up job. <laughs> right? Do. Like yes. for someone who's so childlike and open and vulnerable and up for the adventure, you also are captain of a pretty big army and have a lot of people looking to you for decisions. Do you ever feel like you're playing dress up? Do you go home and go, oh my God, did you see that office? That's mine. <laughs> or those theaters are mine, or I'm making choices that actually, Jordan, you have a real legacy, a lasting legacy. You have changed the course of theater history. Like, it's so heady for me to be sitting with you, and I'm trying to pretend like that's just a weird aside. But when you really think about it, the kinds of choices you're making and the artists that you're choosing to nurture and the world of theater that you're curating, this is a very different face of what theater landlords and producers look like in like 42nd Street and, and the Zigfields. And right, like this is a new face and a new age. You happen to have been blessed 
with exquisite taste. I don't think that's something you can learn. Someone has a like a gut feeling and an instinct. So does your mom. I know that because she did the very first thing I did. Uh-huh. Um, yes, no, she does she de- So that's that's the lucky part. Like some people are born with an amazing voice and then they train it. You were born with like some gift to sense, oh, this should be a alive. Mm. This should be alive. We don't need to see it on our television or although now we can see things on our television or YouTube or in the movies. You can go see falsettos in a movie. Like it's kind yes. of amazing. But in I'm just saying movie. yes, because it allows people who don't live in New York City or the metropolitan area to experience what those lucky enough to live here mm. get to see live. But how do you go through the world? Okay. So um That's a lot to unpack. Again. Oh, too bad audio because that whole thing just made yeah. me cry. So thank you You're for welcome. seeing me. Um, so I don't do that first thing that you said um, because I think I um, and I do think this connects to a lot of what we've been talking about. I observe myself to uh, I've grown into myself. That boy who didn't make sense of himself as a child, we catch up to ourselves. And um, and I, I don't think that wasn't true 10 years ago even. Um, Did you have an aha moment or has it been a gradual? No, I think it's just, um, it is an aggregate feeling over time, which is to say, some days are better than others, of am I myself? And I think that's what we're all trying to figure out. And, is, interesting love and par- is, is love a part of that? Like 10 years ago is about when you met your partner. Almost 15. 15 years ago? Yeah. Okay. Um, yes, no, love was a, was, is, a, is a huge part of it. And my husband, Richie, is, is the biggest part of that being true because um, he was really the the first person peer relationship you know different than a parent or a teacher um, but really the first person who saw me in me when you met Richie were you already at you Jamson had you no. taken that job no it was a, a few years later and I have a nuts and bolts question for you Like, I got to be in a bunch of Broadway shows, and I don't remember, like, when I did Ballyhoo, did the person who owned the Helena Hayes Theater also produce my play? Is that always how it works, that the theater itself is a producer? Or do people sometimes just rent a theater for their show? How does that work? No, it's mostly the case that um, the theater is the theater and there is an independent producer that is producing the show on the stage. Occasionally, the theater is the producer. Very occasionally, the theater is the lead producer, the developing producer. Um, More frequently, the theater is a co-producer, a supporting producer, and most, but most of the time, not. Uh, And that's true for me, too. I, I I love the relationship that I get to have to sh- with shows in all of those capacities. Okay. So you have shows in your theaters that you're also a producer of, and then you have shows in your theaters that are tenants that you love and hope Correct. they stay a long time. Yeah. So I liken it to parenting versus gra- different from grandparenting. 
producing is parenting. Theater owning is grandparenting, mm -hmm. right? You are very involved at milestone moments. You don't do daily care and feeding. But never at question is the love. Right. That's great. Even if you're in Paris, when Even the baby is Paris. born, you're... <laughs> yes, love no. Paris. Bonjour, Jordan. All right. So tell me, like, what's making you really excited right now? Mm. A lot is making me excited. Uh, I'm very excited about our season of shows. Springsteen is an extraordinary, extraordinary, deeply meaningful experience uh, to be part of. And in the spring, Mean Girls, Frozen, uh, and I'm producing with the National Angels in America. Oh, I've heard of that. That's a, that's a cute little play. <laughs> that is adorable. <laughs> I'm going to put that on an undersling. <laughs> adorable. Alana. Yes, I'm great um, at marketing and branding. Yeah. So I'm very excited about, about this season. I'm also uh, creating an, a web series with an extraordinary group of artists and um, that I am writing and performing in. We go in circles. Our life, our life goes in circles, and we say yes and. I took that improv class. Uh-huh. I know. Is it called Yes And? No, no. <laughs> it's what has come out of me and our team in reaction to what is happening in our world right now. Uh-huh. And the thing that I just cannot get over is the basic, basic, basic things that we teach our children. The things like, remember that book, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten? Like yes. the stuff that's in there. Yeah. The exact opposite. Truly, like 180 exact opposite is being demonstrated for us daily at the highest levels and at all levels of our world right now. And those two things together have been put through the mill of musical and comedy and uh, what are we going to do with this world, kids? Uh, and we've made a web series called The Birds and the BS with Jordan Roth. When do we get to see it? Very, very soon. First episodes are in the can, as they say. This is amazing. When there was a can. I can't. Exciting. <laughs> That's amazing. All right. I'm going to ask you one last thing, and you may or may not have one, and so we can use it or not use it. But I ask almost every one of my guests if they can share a now hilarious, not so funny at the time audition story. It can be from a producer's perspective, a director's perspective, or the actual auditioner themselves. Everyone seems to have something that pops into their head, even if they can't name names, of something they observed or saw that sticks with them even now. Where my mind goes <laughs> okay. is auditioning for a musical that shall remain nameless. We were auditioning for the ensemble. And this woman came in who was a fabulous dancer, and she it was it was the singing part of the ensemble auditions, which you know always it's funny you say how when people invite you to come sing, you think that's amazing and hilarious because there's no stakes for you yeah. on that. Um, I think it's really nice of them to invite me. So uh, often there's a part of it that you 
feel better at and a part of it that you think, oh, here's, here's my, oh, God, am I going to get through that part of it so I can get to do the other part of it that I feel stronger at. And the truth is usually you're fantastic at all of it, but these are the stories we tell ourselves. And this woman came in and she sang, there's got to be something better than this all the way through. And she nailed it. And, um, you know, thanks so much, thanks so much, everybody leaves, and then you talk. And I just remember our casting director on this show was like, smart, smart, she worked on the singing. Because she, she, wasn't, she, she wasn't always able to do that singing. That, like a couple of years, yeah, no, she worked on that, and, and now she can do that. So, I don't know, insane that what was supposed to be hilarious or devastating turned into, like, and I just thought that was such an act of generosity and bravery that she, like, you know, that she worked on, on it and he observed that and, and... And he acknowledged it. Yeah. But the thing is, I hope she knows that. Well, she got the part. Dude. She... <laughs> okay. That's a great story. That's a great story. So she knows. Well, whoever you are... Laura Benanti, we are so <laughs> good for you. Jordan Roth, I cannot thank you enough for being here today. I really mean that this has been extraordinary. And uh, I am so honored to have you here and that my listeners are going to get to know you in this way is fantastic. I am so, grateful to you and I am grateful to everybody listening for yes. um, opening. Yeah. And guys, make sure that you listen because those Springsteen tickets... <laughs> Might have your name on them. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So, there you go. These are little known facts that you know. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc.